There is a fight and a battle that's a part of the Christian life. There is a fight and a battle and a war that is part of the Christian life. And some of you this morning may hear that and you may be like, yes, I'm looking for a fight. I'm looking for a battle. Well, hang in here. One pastor long ago even kind of put it like this. He said, there's a mean streak in Christian living. And he followed that up to say that it's not against other people. That there's a mean streak against the sin and the disorder that still lives within us as Christians. The cross changes everything, doesn't it? We sung about this this morning. The cross changes everything. It takes a person who is alienated, who is far off, who is an enemy of God, and the cross reconciles us to God. Because through Christ, because of His sacrifice on the cross, that Christ took on our sin and our punishment and our guilt, and if we place our faith and our hope in Christ, we get His righteousness. We get declared right before an almighty, holy God. And it says that then we are new creations. We're new creatures. And we're supposed to live in a certain way. We've got new marching orders. And I think if we're honest this morning, all of us here who are believers could give testimony to the fight, to the war that we feel battling within. Our pride. Our sinful desires. Our desire for the things of the world. And many times that that defines us more than our desires for the Lord and for God and His glory. And James has been teaching us something about this, hasn't he? As we've looked at James over and over again from this pulpit, that we have told you that James is, is like New Testament wisdom literature. That James is laying out the, 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 the way of wisdom like we see in the Old Testament. And over and over in the book of James, James is laying out that there is a path, there is a way that is right, that leads to righteousness, that leads to living. And then there is another way. There are these two paths. And the other way is the unwise path that leads to destruction. And in this text this morning, it's interesting. I think James kind of, as he's writing this, goes from kind of being a sage, full of wisdom, to being a prophet. Not the kind of prophet that is seeing the future, but the kind of Old Testament prophet. The kind of like, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, who is calling a people to repentance. Who is pointing out a problem. And is using his prophetic voice. He's being a mouthpiece from God. A couple weeks ago, Gary preached in chapter 3. The end of chapter 3. And we saw that there are two paths of wisdom. One from above and one from below. Two weeks ago, when we were uh, in James. And we looked at chapter 4. And we looked at there are quarrels and conflicts among you. We've talked about pleasures and lust and envy that are ungodly. 
And this is not what God has called us to. This is not the way that God has called us to live. When we live this way, when we live according to that worldly wisdom, when we live according to worldly desires and worldly pleasures, it makes us ineffective as Christians. It makes us ineffective to the task to which our Savior has called us. It leads to conflict. It leads to disorder. It doesn't lead to life and joy and peace. God is using James in this text to call us out, to call us forward, to be who he has created us to be as believers. One of the things over and over, Joe, it's coming. Joe always asks me if I'm getting my chair out. <laughs> Why do you think people go to counseling? Different reasons. Hopefully the reason that somebody would come into a counseling office is that they have a desire to change. That's not always the case. Early in my counseling career, uh, parents would be dragging a lot of teenagers into my office who had no interest in changing and would wonder why my magic voodoo of counseling didn't work. But hopefully, if we place ourselves in a chair in someone's office and, and we're in need of help, that we know that we need to change. Hopefully, as you come in here this morning, as believers, as you come in here this morning as believers and you hear this word from the book of James, my hope and my prayer is that you know in your life that change needs to take place. That you're here to receive a word from God. And that you're desiring for that to change you, for that to conform you more to the image of Christ than when you came in. But I'm aware that even as I start this message that some of you are just tuning me out already. You're tired. You're overwhelmed. You're guilt ridden. Some of you this morning walk in here knowing that you're living in such a way you're living it according to the world and that you're enjoying it and you don't want me to mess with you. You don't want God's word to have dominion in your heart. And what I want to say to you this morning, church. Is God is calling you to fight. God is calling you forward. He's calling you forward to fight. And that if we are in Christ, we have a hope, we have a strength that is greater than you could imagine. You know, it's interesting, this text, this text this morning, as you heard it read, as Mark read it, if, you, if you're a student of the Bible, you've heard these themes in this text before in other places. Certainly, we could look at the Old Testament and you, you get some of these themes in the Old Testament. We believe that James was the earliest book written in the Old Testament, and so uh, it was written probably sometime in the 50s. First Peter was written in the 60s, and if you go to First Peter chapter 5, there are some word-for-word, word exact um, 
parallels in this text in 1 Peter chapter 5. The Gospels, we think, were began to be written in the 70s, and you listen to something like the Sermon on the Mount, and again, you hear these themes again. All, I, all I'm saying by this is that whatever is going on in this text, our passage this morning, this was the, the ethos of the Christian teaching of the early church. It's repeated over and over again. It's important. We can't read this scripture without hearing these themes over and over again in the Bible. People of Christ, God wants you to hear this this morning. And as we dig into this word, I want you to see some bookends. Verse 6 wasn't read. It was part of the sermon two weeks ago. But, but listen to the similarity. In verse 6, he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. The bookends of this text talk about our position as Christians. Our position as Christians is that we are to be a humble people. We humble ourselves before the Lord, knowing, knowing that God is God. He is holy. He is righteous. He is so far above us and beyond us. He is the only pure right <laughs> And there's no other position that we can take in the face of that God, in the presence of that God, but to humble ourselves. It's the right position that we humble ourselves and we receive from Him. But how often it is that we don't do that and we place ourselves above Him and we place ourselves above His Word. But I want you to hear from God this morning. Some commentators and folks, uh, when referring to this part of our passage, refer to this as the, the Ten Commandments in the New Testament, or James's Ten Commandments. And the reason is, is that in this section of Scripture, there are ten imperatives, there are ten commands. And as Mark read, I don't know if you heard them, and I, let me read again, and I want you to, to listen for them. I will emphasize them. Verse 7, if this is a command, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Another way to read this, and I won't go back through it, but again, it could be read like this. You submit, therefore, to God. You resist the devil. Do this. Amen? See you next week. I mean, think about it. How often in a counseling room, in a counseling chair, is it as simple as, hey, listen, Submit to God and resist the devil. Leave your money at the door and I'll see you again next week. It doesn't feel that easy, does it? 
I want you to know that we, we have a help. One of my son's friends who was with us last night, I told him last night that I was going to talk about his dad in the service, and he got a kick out of that. His dad is a cardiologist, and he deals with the uh, electronic part of the heart. Um, and so he installs pacemakers and does all that measurement. And so if you're having if you're having heart problems where your heart's out of rhythm or there's something funky going on with your heart, that's what he does. And in fact, you know, if you've been here for any amount of time, all of you know Mr. Jeremy, who is a rep for those things and actually goes into surgery and helps program the pacemakers and, and that sort of thing. Fascinating. It, it helps us to be able to live if you have one of those. It, it makes your heart and the electronic functioning of that to where you can live. So, so if this morning, and some of you have had that surgery, if I were to call those of you who have had that surgery, who have a pacemaker, don't come forward. But if I were to call you forward, and then I were to say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk around the church four times. You do it. Hopefully, the pacemaker's working right, and people are taking care of themselves, and they could go walk around the church four times. What I want you to see is the reality is their ability to walk around the church four times is due to that there's something inside of them that is helping their heart stay in rhythm so that that walking around the church four times doesn't make them collapse over dead or gives them the energy because the heart's working right. And this is a great example of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. That these commands are given to us, do this, but in reality, we're not left alone just to do this in and, in and with our own strength. That God has given us the Spirit to help us, to empower us. This is part of the Christian life. Living, it's the Christian life, living by the power of the Spirit. You know, we sing in our songs... One of the songs that we sing very often has the line, the strength to follow your commands, it doesn't come from me. One of the verses that you hear over and over preached and taught in Christian circles is, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God that is at work within you. The promise of the Old Testament, of the new day, there is coming a day, there's a new covenant in which God will put His Spirit inside of us. And John 16 is one of the most amazing chapters of the Bible. And it's interesting, my mother who, um, my mother who just is somebody who just loves Jesus is the only way to describe my mother. Well, there's many ways to describe my mother, but that's one way of describing my mother. And, and one of the things that I've I've heard my mother talk about when I was little because she loved Jesus so much that it just baffled her this passage in John 16 where Jesus says it's better for you disciples that I go away because when you love Jesus with all of your being how in the world could you say this is good news he's going away and Jesus says it's better for you that I go away because I'm sending the Holy Spirit and he will live inside of you and he will guide you he will convict you and he will lead you into all righteousness and he will glorify Christ. 
And you may say, Lewis, wait, wait, wait. I heard this passage read and there's no mention of the Holy Spirit in this passage. And I want to say two things to you. One is this. Because of Pentecost, because we're in the new covenant, that this idea, this reality of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, it's, it's a part of the, the New Testament ethic. It's who we are. And so a lot of times it's just assumed the power of the Spirit. But I also want to say, wait, wait a minute, not too fast. Go back up to verse five for a minute. In different translations, this is a difficult passage to translate, but the NASB, I think, gets it right. And let me just point out what it says. Or you do not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose when it says he, the subject here, God, jealously desires that the spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, which he has made dwell in us. And if we put this in context, we look at verse four where Paul, where James says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of God makes himself an enemy of God. And then James lays out and listen, you adulteress, God is calling you forward in conviction. In your spirit, if you are a believer, the Holy Spirit, when you hear this, when you hear this word being called over, you should convict you. And then verse six. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so he's calling to conviction through the spirit and he's laying out that there's a greater grace in God. And I think so as 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 we're here in this text. I think this idea of the Holy Spirit in us and God using it to call us out that as we get to these commands. That James, as he is writing here, is telling us that we have a helper. That is working in us. So as we hear and and dig through these massive truths, you're not alone. You don't have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't just have to white knuckle it. But God's spirit is working inside of you to draw you into this. So when we get to verse seven and we get these first two commands, submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil. That believer. This is possible. It's possible. These two things go hand in hand, don't they? Isn't this what James has been teaching us throughout this book? If you're not resisting the devil, you're not submitting to God. If you're not submitting to God, you're not resisting the devil. It's the same thing we saw in chapter three. There's a worldly wisdom and there's a wisdom from above. And that we have to choose which one that we're going to follow. Let's be sure we make a connection that James has made throughout this text. As we ask ourselves the question, what keeps us from submitting to God? In chapter one, do you remember this in verse 13 and 14, 13 through 15? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings 
forth death. Very similar to James chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures which wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There's a war going on inside of you. There's remaining sin. And so the question is, how in the world do we deal with this? In chapter 1, verse 5, God tells us through James that when we are lacking in wisdom, we go to God in prayer. If that battle is raging inside of us and we don't know what to do, we don't just white knuckle it, we go to God in prayer, trusting. Trusting that God will answer that prayer. For a couple of weeks I've been thinking about the the opposite of chapter 4 verse 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. The opposite with that would be that you ask and you receive because you ask with the right motives that you may glorify God. When submission is tough, when there's a battle raging, what do you do? Do you pray? Do you confess before the Lord? God, I don't want to follow your command. I am being lured by the temptations of this world. I'm being enticed in my flesh, in the lust of my flesh, because I want to be right. I want to be seen a certain way. I'm being enticed and within my soul to act a certain way. Sometimes we don't even know what's going on. And so sometimes one of the things that, I, that I've got to do in my own life is when I feel this conflict, when I feel this anger, when I feel this disruption, this disorder in my own soul. I have to ask myself this question. God. In this moment, what is it in my life that I'm desiring more than you? Because I know that when I desire God and his holiness and to live according to the way that he wants me to live, that those feelings that I often have are not the result of desiring God. There's good news, isn't there? When you resist this, when you take it to the Lord. These messages from the evil one. When you resist it, the devil will flee from you. He will flee from you because your desire is no longer towards the things of the world, but your desires are towards the things of God and brothers and sisters in the Lord. He has no power over you. Resist. Submit to a greater joy, not that counterfeit 
stuff that the devil promises or this world promises. This is what I love about our God. He doesn't call us to humdrum, mediocre stuff. He calls us into a life of great joy and pleasure that can only be found in Him. And when we resist the junk of the world, we get Him. Amen? Amen. Verse 8 is related, isn't it? You see the connection. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Is this not the greatest news you've ever heard? God isn't hiding from you. God isn't holding out from you. Over and over in the Scriptures, we see this idea of draw near to Him and He will draw near to you. The verse that we should all love is, Knock, if you are seeking, guess what? You will find. Amen? Draw near to Him. Man. His Word, His will, His plan leads to His pleasure, His presence, His joy, and His peace. God is not some heavenly Father that is always displeased with us, that is waiting to just kind of beat us into submission. That's not who God is. Listen to the promise of this verse. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Good stuff. (laughs) He's calling us out, isn't he? He's calling us out to live in his holiness and his righteousness. You know, one of the things that I was reminded by talking with someone a couple of weeks ago that just need to make sure that we declare here is that, you know, yes, we are sinners who are saved by grace. Yes, we are a messy bunch. Yes, we are needy. Yes, we have hurts and hang ups. But that's not an excuse. God is calling us out to live a different way. And this should thrill your soul. You were made to walk according to the word of God. And it is a wild, adventurous, difficult journey. But he is with us all the way. It's who we are, church. Notice the second part of this verse. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This whole idea of, of having clean hands is, this, is, is, is doing right things, deeds, good works. James says, be doers of the word. And notice the connection is that the clean hands, the deeds, are connected to a good heart. God doesn't want us to be hypocrites. Or what Jesus in the, Jesus in the Gospels calls the whitewashed tombs. That outside it looks all polished and good because you've got the good works, but inside things are rotten to the core. That he's calling us to live a life that is consistent. What's in us is coming out of us. This is why, this is why we have these words again when it says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. If you remember, and I'm sure you all remember every sermon that I've ever done, so you remember early on we got this same word double minded early on in the book of James. And we said that actually the better translation is double souled. Unstable. Our soul, everything that we are, our whole being, that what God is calling us into is a one souledness. That our souls, everything in us is yearning and longing and rejoicing and glorying in God our Father. 
And so what he says here again is don't be double souled. Make sure your heart is in the right place and out of that heart flows the works and the deeds. Your passion to love your neighbor. Should come from the reality that you love your neighbor. Not so that you might be seen or so that we at the church may say, oh, look, Lewis is such a good Christian because he comes to everything. No, no, no. Let God's word dwell richly within you. We love, as you heard earlier, because he has first loved us. That it flows out of this heart that has been loved. Our objective is to, our desire, our obedience is to know him and to make him known. And, and this is, when this is flowing from the reality and the joy that you have been loved by the God of the universe, that Christ died for you so that you can have a relationship with God, there is nothing greater in this world. And now there should be an objection here for those of you who have read ahead and said, okay, preacher, how are you going to deal with these other commands? You've talked a lot about joy, pleasure, happiness, peace. How are you going to talk about the command, be miserable, mourn, and weep. For some of you, these are your spiritual gifts. <laughs> Just kidding. I, I, I think, if you'll hang with me, I think you'll see something joyous. I think you'll see something, even in this passage... It makes you want to rejoice. Verse 4, as James is addressing this group of believers, he calls them adulteresses. That's a heavy, heavy charge. Your friendship with the world is hostility towards God. In verse 8, again, notice the words, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so the context is driving here that these are people that are not living single-souled. They're friends with the world. And so to these people, James is rightfully saying that they should be miserable, that they should mourn, and that they should weep. And that their laughter should be turned into mourning and their joy to gloom. One commentator puts it this way, speaking about the laughter part of this passage. Laughter seems to describe the loud gaiety of worldly people. Their frivolity will become gloomy when they recognize their foolish choices. Laughter and joy are not evil. Hear that, church. Laughter and joy are not evil. However, the particular moments when we meet God as sinners... Demand a serious repentance rather than a hilarious celebration. Christians face times for serious repentance and such times must not be laughed off. Oh, that our sin, your sin and my sin. Would lead us. Into misery and to mourn. 
Oh, that our sin, church, your sin, my sin, would be seen as an assault on a holy God and would lead us to weep. And in that moment, oh, that the Spirit of God would convict us of the truth of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He is what? He is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us and to lead us into all righteousness. Don't forget the bookends of this passage. Listen again to the bookends of this passage. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud. But to the humble, grace. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will what? He will exalt you. He doesn't pile on, He doesn't beat down. He lifts up. Humble yourselves. Your mourning will turn to celebration because of how great our God is. And so the question I have for you this morning is, will you live? Will you live? Many days I feel really old. I wake up in the morning and I uh, go to the gym and there are many days that my knees hurt, my back hurts, and yet I feel like what is best for me is to get up and to go and to, to exercise, that it's a good thing for me. And so when I hear the words of Hebrews 12, 11 and 12, it rings true physically. All discipline for the moment seems not to... Be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And this isn't talking about going to the gym. But it is talking about our spiritual life. How many of you this morning, in your spiritual life, Feel defeated, that you got some old knees, and it's holding you back. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. You can't do that, but the Holy Spirit can. Will you get up? Will you walk forward? Will you live? Will you fight? Will you fight every impulse inside of you this morning that is tempting you to drift into the pleasures of this world and away from the great grace and pleasure that can only be found in the God of the universe who loves us and wants to pour himself into us? Will you fight? Will you fight? Will you heed to the Spirit's call this morning? Will you resist? And will you rejoice? Let's pray.
Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. God, you are a God of grace, a God of love. You're calling us out to be who you've created us to be. God, I pray that we will be a people. A people here at Singham Mountain Bible Church who submit themselves to you. God, I pray that we would resist the sin nature inside of us that is trying to whisper to us that the world and its ways are greater. God, help us to look to you. In your son's name, through which all this is possible. Jesus, amen.